listening to the Dr. Claude Kirshner Show. My name is Dr. Claude Kirshner, and we are here to serve organizational leaders and agile teams who strive for excellence and differentiation. I hope you enjoy the content. If you have any questions or would like some additional resources, please visit our website at www.archconsults.com. Enjoy. So I ask the question again, do we have a global mindset? Truly, are you seeking out the, the growth of your knowledge, how you feel and your social interactions with, with people from other areas of the, of the planet? Okay, so there are two ways we're gonna go about this conversation. One is what do we think a global mindset is? And then we're gonna talk about how we develop it. And then we're gonna talk about cultural intelligence which is deemed called CQ, kind of like EQ is emotional intelligence, there's cultural intelligence. Somebody with a global mindset, how would they believe, how would they act? Open-minded, so open-minded towards global markets, open-minded to other cultures, willingness to learn. We can use compassion, we could use understanding. Empathy takes a lot of exposure to a person or a culture to build up empathy. Knowledge leads to a mindset, doesn't it? Growing in knowledge is important, and it's how we potentially build a global mindset. What then must we do in order to develop a global mindset? Exposure is a good one. Immersive, putting ourselves within. So if you wanted to learn another language, if you wanted to learn about another culture, there's a book called Amunglu in a Township. And it's a book I read before I went to South Africa, and it's about a white guy, they call him Amunglu, that lives in an African township, a shanty town, where there's shacks. It's very much a ghetto. And he wrote a story about it. And he was fully immersed into a very dangerous culture. And he was, an, he was an outlier. There was no white people in this township. And it was a great book. And he learned more about the culture through that immersion than anyone ever has written about. Because nobody else was willing to do it. Think about Jane Goodall. She lived with chimpanzees for an extended period of time. She, she wrote a ton of books. And some movies were based on her. But she lived with chimpanzees for years and years. And she got to know them. She studied them. She studied their behaviors. She was immersive within the environment of chimpanzees. So that helped her build her mindset about the culture, the practices, the attitudes, beliefs, whatever that looks like. But then let's think about a global mindset, the world. Think about your individual life, think about North America, South America, the whole hemisphere. And then think about Asia, Africa, Europe. Think about all of these continents, Australia. Now bring it all together as one world and imagine that that you don't look at it as you as the individual, your city, your state, whatever, you look at it as one world. So we, we have a global perspective, not a unique perspective on what we do day to day. That's not an easy perspective to develop and delineate, but certain business leaders and certain managers, they train themselves on how to develop this. What does it mean to be culturally intelligent? And are you culturally intelligent? And if so, give me an example. Do you have cultural intelligence? What makes you think you have cultural intelligence? If so, how can you demonstrate that? We're now going big to a little bit more narrow. So once you have the global mindset, now you step into somebody else's culture. How do you demonstrate your intelligence within a different culture? You, you walk into a dojo in, in Japan. You walk into the dojo. What do you do right before you walk into the dojo? You're not coming in with your dirty boots into that dojo. If you're used to being in these different environments, you just, it just comes naturally. So you're dating somebody that their parents are originally from an Arab nation. 
and you are from Venezuela, living in America. Tell us about that experience and tell us what kind of intelligence you've developed of withholding certain information because you know it could offend somebody. And knowing their traditions and realizing that you're stepping foot into their house, this is their home, and that their culture is the dominant culture within that home, whether you like it or not. So your ability to understand it and maybe do some research or prepare for it is a demonstration of your willingness to adopt cultural intelligence. That there are a multitude of facets that differ from culture to culture. But the first thing we're going to talk about as managers, as business leaders, is why it's important and what a time is this to develop a global mindset. And the biggest part of the first section of the discussion we have tonight is looking at the opportunities that there are globally in a global business environment. And as managers stepping into a management position, as some of us probably already know, it's good for us to understand the global nature and the interconnected nature of our economy and the socioeconomic, the political environment, just the cultural understanding of opportunities that we have. But the prerequisite of cultural intelligence is having a global mindset. There's something called ethnocentrism. So if I am originally from Mexico, I believe that my Mexican practices are better than others. So I predominantly think that my culture or my way of thinking, my way of believing in my country trumps that of others. That's called being ethnocentric, which I'm sure a lot of you know people that are that way, that are sort of unwilling to even have a conversation about somebody else's way of doing things. So we're stepping away from the brainstorming of ideas and we're stepping into the objective nature of the three dimensions of a global mindset. Cognitive dimension, it's knowledge. Think of cognition, like understanding the way our brain works. So cognitive is mostly knowledge-based. It's, it's learning environments. So what are we learning? What are we reading? What, are we, what languages do we know? How are we shaping our knowledge to understand? This is building your cognitive perspective of your global mindset. What's the second one? Moving from cognitive to psychological. It's moving from the thinking to the feeling and the doing. Okay, I got the brain knowledge. Now is that brain knowledge transitioning into my acting and my perceiving and my behavior? Yeah, it's the psychological components. When a person is depressed or when a person has experience of trauma, they're psychologically impaired and they act ways that they didn't before. So is our knowledge transitioning into our psyche? Is it changing us? What we're learning is it making us become more aware of the global perspective, the global environment, the business environment, cognitive, cognition to psychological. We know something, we feel a type of way, we start to act a type of way. Now, are we choosing to be in dynamics, social dynamics with people of other cultures? Are we putting ourselves in environments that are different or unique? Do we do our thoughts and our feelings transition into the the social interactions? Are we? Am I? Habla español con mi amigo. Am I, <laughs> am I enseñar español porque yo trabajo en Miami? Am I doing it? And that's, I may know some words in Spanish. I may feel like I am capable of speaking Spanish, but it doesn't mean that I'm actually speaking Spanish with other people. So if I can immerse myself in it, I can learn about it. I can start acting it out. I can start feeling a type of way about it. And then I, I put myself in those environments. All three of those things develop in us a global mindset. So I ask the question again, do we have a global mindset, truly? Are you seeking out the, the growth of your knowledge, how you feel, and your social interactions with, with people from other areas of the, of the planet? 
individualistic versus a collectivist society where here we almost believe in this independence from one another is you have your own truth. I have my own truth. We can be friends, but we're not really the same people versus there's some areas in the U.S. that are, are very collective and especially in faith-based groups where people come together and worship a particular God, whatever they're doing, they're coming together and they're expressing their value system in a similar way. But I don't want to dive too much into culture. What's interesting about it is I can be, I can have a global mindset and I can have a mindset of openness towards other people's faith practices or towards other people's cultures, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I have to adopt them as my own. That your actions and your attitude influence mine. It's just that I'm open-minded to learning about it. And that's what, that's really what a global mindset is. It's not transitioning who I am and my core values. It's just, it's just more of that open-minded nature. And more and more in business, it's becoming a predominant skill set that people want to see that their new employees have, is that global mindset. Less about conforming to cultures and more about understanding the mindset. This says global mindset, ability of managers to appreciate and influence individuals, groups, organizations, and systems that possess different social, cultural, political, institutional, intellectual, and psychological characteristics. It doesn't say become like them. It says appreciate and influence individuals in those groups. Expand the global mindset, thinking, curiosity, sort of like open-mindedness. Just curious. I'm curious about visiting my Indian friends in grad school and going to their house. From India, there's six of them living in a house. So you can imagine, this is a small apartment. You walk in, similar to the dojo concept, what are some immediate things that I noticed when I walked into my friend's house that were full-blown straight from Bangladesh? Ganesha is known as a remover of obstacles and is the offspring of Shiva, the Hindu god of destruction. And they wanted to talk to me about it. And I was open-minded. I was really curious. Was like, what is that? Why has it got all the jewelry on? Why is it an elephant looks like What's the deal with all the letters? I was very curious about it. And they wanted to tell me about it. How about the furniture? Did they have a lot of furniture in their house? From what I understand is an Indian custom and a tradition is to eat where? On the floor. They didn't have a dining table. So I'm here, but I'm at their house, sitting on a pillow, eating on the floor. Tell me about their eating habits. First of all, how about my senses when I walk in? Think about senses. What 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 do I notice when I walk in this house? Like the curry, theory, like the spices. The they, they have a different scent to their homes. <laughs> As do sometimes probably American people, Asian people, it's different. But to them, that is normal. So my mindset of trying to understand and being willing to walk into that environment and learn about it, sitting on the floor, and how about how do they eat? Do they hands. eat with their hands? So what do they want to make sure you do before you eat? Just wash your hands real good. Your hands, the cleanliness of your hands is really important. They roll out the red carpet for me. They are so excited that their American friends coming over. And it was a wonderful experience, and I'll never forget it. And I'm already now talking about this experience with, with people in situations like this. Are you willing to go into culture like that, experience that, and be curious, confident and curious? Propensity to have a better global mindset. So hold on to that and leverage that. That's a good thing. Objectively, as a business, as a manager, and as a leader, how do we, if we wanted to, expand our organization internationally? What are some ways that we could potentially step into this global environment? Walk me through that. You're a, you're a business and you're set up here in the United States and you say, hey, I'd like to do business with Brazil. What does that look like? You call Brazil and say, hey, would you buy some of my products? Yes. You, you develop a customer base in Brazil. And, and now people from Brazil are buying your products. The United States company, they're buying your products. What are some challenges 
that you may face along that path. Language differences, currency differences, there could be tariffs when you export certain things. You're essentially exporting, right? You make it here, you export it, and you sell it in a different country. So there, there's clearly going to be factors that differentiate the way we do business here in the United States and the way they do business in Brazil. And then there's the business factors of the currency exchange, the potential higher cost. How about risk? Is it riskier? What Brazil. kinds of risks are we taking? If you've never exported anything, it could get stolen, could get lost. How about the government can just confiscate it? Oh, these, these are from the U.S. people? We're just going to take that. So lost. Lost, gone. Never have it again. It's political risk. You're exposing yourself to a slew of additional risks. But that's the downside. The upside is what? More sales. More profit. That culture could adopt whatever it is more so than there. There's less competition maybe in a different country. The people don't have as much access to that particular product, essentially less competitors. Say that five different ways, but it could be a good thing. Then you develop the skill set and the global mindset and potentially some cultural intelligence as a business person, as a manager, to take that platform and expand it to other countries similar to Brazil. You may be able to set up in a different kind of way. So you're developing this capacity to expand your brand globally. Went to another country, set up a business, and exchange things for a profit. The point is, it can be very lucrative, and there's ways to do it. In a multinational corporation, MNC, multinational corporation, means you're doing business in other countries, and at least 25% of your revenues come from another country. That will classify you as a multinational corporation. And in that international business program, they teach you how to become an MNC, how to work with an MNC, how to develop a global mindset, how to have cultural intelligence. So there's whole, not just classes designed around the curriculum that we're talking about tonight, but there's whole years and there's whole degrees based on this. And there's internships in international business. And a lot of time it's going to require you have a global mindset and also have some level of cultural intelligence. There's people from all over the world that are experiencing this, this intermingling culture. When they talked about that, and they also talked about controlling the whole process from end to end, that's a cost. It's, it's more expensive than what other people would typically do. Do you think that that cost cuts into their profit? But then what's the return on investment for that cost? Quality, trust. The, the consumers know that what they're getting is consistent, which is goes back to quality, but it's a, they're developing a brand. When they put that black diamond on something, they know that this is, this is going to be good. If they allowed another, they outsourced or offshored something or subcontracted something uh, that they didn't control or they weren't aware of, or at least they didn't put their hands on or own primarily. It sounds like he built a factory somewhere. <laughs> he didn't offshore it. Then you know that that's going to be something that is substantial. It sounds like a lot of their strategy about expanding themselves globally was more about the proximity of the customers, being near them, understanding their culture, and just making products that help them in their mountaineering and their climbing and their skiing and their outdoor adventures. So it was more about immersive in the culture, knowing that once they're immersive, they have a larger group of people that they could sell to, and then they create products to sell to those people. It wasn't driven by cost or efficiency or that kind of stuff. It was driven, it was a different kind of strategy, a different kind of global mindset. If you were running a company that was operating in a multitude of different countries, would you want it to be a fully controlled entity where how you did it at corporate was how everybody else did it and that you were to develop those efficiencies and you were to disseminate the company from one singular point? 
or would you run it so that each nation and the company within the nation was autonomous, meaning they'd operate independent? So one, one voice running the global operation or 10 different voices within the culture running it without any bureaucracy autonomously. What are the difference between the two? So the one perspective is you got this megaphone company operating with the globe versus you have the same company, but it's operating independently in all of these different countries. It's a tricky question. There's no right answer. So the answer is it depends. But I want you to see how that tricky question and as managers, how that kind of begs the question of, well, what's our strategy? What's our plan? What's our mission? What's our vision? Are we meant to develop efficiencies and scale and find costs? When you have a global mindset like this, when you have a, a fully global company, what you're saying is it doesn't matter what country we're, we originated from. Our, our customer base is the world. So if it's cheaper to manufacture here and it makes sense, then we manufacture there and it makes sense. If, it, if it's better for us to distribute all of our products from this location, then that's what we do. Versus when you have companies that operate independently, they try to absorb more of that natural flavor, that natural culture. Yeah, they're the same company, but they operate totally differently. But all the money goes in one pot. It's the same company. It's just a different strategy. How does Walmart do it? Efficiency, scale, supply chain management. They've gotten into some legal regulations because in certain countries, they'd go and sell below cost. And in certain countries, they weren't allowed to do that. Political regulation said, that's not allowed here. So Walmart has run into some, some issues and some struggles. How about Domino's Pizza? Think about Domino's Pizza. They're capable of each individual country, they're capable of tailoring their products to, it's a very simple product. That, how about the Black Diamond? How did the Black Diamond company do it? One company, one culture, they own everything, they just adapt locally, but they don't operate independently locally. Like a banking system organization. They, they probably have different rules and regulations depending on the country. And a lot of that has to do with the differences of financial environments between the different countries because of the complexities of financials. So you almost need someone organic there to run the, they'll say, the European division of Wells Fargo. The European division of Wells Fargo does not work with the American division of Wells Fargo. They don't go to the same corporate training. They go to the local Wells Fargo European division. But you can see the opportunities. So the bottom of the pyramid, if you think about a pyramid, is the largest group of the people in the world. There was a really cool map that demonstrated the percentage of population in the world. North America has 5% of the world's population. So some of these other continents, Africa, Asia, South America, major population. And some of those continents, unfortunately, are stricken by poverty. There are billions, 4 billion people are at the lowest level of the economic pyramid. And this is one of my passions in life because I think entrepreneurship could be, maybe not scientifically demonstrated, a way of alleviating poverty, a way of bringing people away from poverty. Some people think it creates a, a larger gap and equality between wealthy people and not so wealthy people. But I believe now more than ever, people that are in poverty are, can be exposed to entrepreneurial initiatives. Whereas in the past, if you wanted to start a business, you got, you got to have at least 2,000 bucks, you got to be able to, but now it's so easy because we're interconnected the market is so much bigger. If you're good and hardworking and you can come up with a decent business concept or you're good doing nails and, and doing hair, you can, you can start a nail salon or a studio. So I, I believe that business is a solution to poverty, at least done in a, in a certain kind of way.
course, I'm a bit biased in that perspective. But businesses that focus on the bottom of the pyramid are their cell phone companies that have came out along the cell phone era that you can buy a cell phone and have access to a cell phone for like five bucks. Are those burner phones? It wasn't Apple that came up with these burner phones. It was these other companies that were serving these people in need. Uh, there's certain kinds of like mosquito nets that we think are, you know, could be expensive. We go to uh, the place here in the U.S. They sell outdoor gear and all this kind of stuff. Worldwide Fishermen's or something like that. So you go there and you, you were to shop around Bass Pro Shops for gear to go play in the outdoors. You, you could leave that place spending $500 on whatever it is to take and survive in the outdoors. But there's a company that can provide that at pennies and they distribute it and they make money doing it. They distribute it in mass, high volume, low margin, but it's decent quality and it's good enough. You can see there's like discount grocery stores where you walk in, there's no frills. There's, you don't have a shopping cart, bring it, there's no bags, the checkout register that hardly even like help you with anything. They, they basically costs are so low, but that means that they can keep their cost of their products though, which is their, their biggest pursuit. And that's important uh, for, for children, for infants, because that's a big cost for families. They make diaper products. Dollar Tree is a good example. Salvation Army, is it Aldi's, I think? Well, I'll venture to say most, if not all places that we shop at in the US are not catering to a lot of the people. These are international companies that are really going after those people that make less than $2,500 a year. They do not make a lot of money at all, but they obviously use that money and they spend it on something. What are they spending on? So those companies say, okay, these are the people we want to target, which isn't a typical target audience. If we wanted to do business and we'll, we'll keep Brazil as a top of mind. And we, we didn't know how to do business in Brazil. One strategy that we can use is just having a partner, sharing the risks and resources with the local partnership. We go to say we're in the banking business and we were capable of doing banking here in the US, but we want to open up a bank in Brazil. We don't just go open up a bank in Brazil. We go to a business person that owns a bank or has relationships with a bank and we ask them, can we, can we go in a partnership? Can we start a new bank here with a new name? And can we, we try to do this together? Where that, the relational equity that they have in that country and the experience they have operating locally is going to add value to our business because they know, already know how to do it. They've already established themselves there. So as opposed to starting fresh, we develop a partnership. A joint venture is a type of partnership. A communist country and a country that has a regime that controls. And from what I understand and what I've, what I've learned in the past, because I've never been to Cuba, is that the government, it's all about politics and the government controls the business. And what some things that limit our experiences when we're living in countries like communist countries and using Cuba as an example, when we get a job, typically we don't leave that job. We stay in the same job for the rest of our career, if we live in that country. So there's not a lot of job transitions. And a lot of time, our success in that job will be dependent on our ability to be political in certain ways. The, the, the businesses are not, it's not a free market economy. You can't, you don't have, there's competition doesn't exist because the government owns everything. So there's some good, good things to that, is that the government provides security, the government provides, make sure that everybody has somewhat of a decent standard of life, but there's a lot of bad things. So in the United States, businesses like McDonald's and Burger King compete with one another. They want to have superior products. So what they tend to do is they tend to have perks for their employees. They want to take care of their employees, pay their employees well, train their employees well, so that their employees can best take care of the customer. So that they make the best burger, 
and so that they, they're competing against other organizations. So therefore, they're incentivized, and Burger King McDonald's is a bad example, but they're incentivized to help make their employees happy. They want their staff and their people to be happy. They want to train and develop their staff. They want to do this kind of stuff. Whereas if you're working in a communistic culture, we'll use Cuba as an example, what is their incentive as an organizational leader to train and empower and develop and grow their employees so that the government can make more money? They're not going to leave us. They're going to stay here in this organization forever. The government owns it, so why do I care whether we make money here or not? Compensation is not great, but why would I pay them more? They're not going to leave me. They don't have another choice. So think about the working conditions and the environment in a communistic political country versus a free market economy. China is a communist country as well. India is a democracy. The United States is a democracy. But China adopts the free market policies, and Cuba, Cuba does as well. But it's just different political risk. I'll use another story to frame this. I have a friend that I used to work with that owned a business in Costa Rica. Total gringo, going to Costa Rica. But he started having some success in Costa Rica. And he was selling plant products, like plant material. He was pretty good at it. So he established a foothold and he started making money in this particular city. And one day, somebody that he recognized, somebody that was pretty popular, somebody that's also in business in that city, wasn't in the same industry, but came to his business during the business day and approached him and said, listen, I'll give you two options. Option number one is, option number two is you leave the country and I never see you again. He was threatened by a local business owner and he's got kids and he's got a wife. And he left all of his inventory, all of his product and completely abandoned his business in Costa Rica and never returned to do business in that country ever again. And he won't. And this this is a bit of an outlier situation because he, he was... He's a wheeler dealer type. Like he was clearly taking away business from somebody else. And he wasn't paying the like local fee to the to the Don or like whoever ran that territory and therefore he was threatened and he just didn't want anything else to do with that. So that's a risk that we take when we walk into other environments. And you could look at that as a as a small microcosm of politics, which in Cuba, I have a friend I talked to just the other day, he was in a DBA program with me. He said he was 16 years old. He was holding a book in his hand, and the book was, it didn't fall in line with the value system of Cuba. It, it talked about being creative and independent, and it was too risky of a book. And he was carrying it in his hand. He, the police officer stopped him and arrested him at 16 years old. He says, you can't have that book. Took the book away from him, and then he obviously moved to the U.S. eventually, and he's more patriotic than I am, more so. Because he can see the differences between the countries and he's very successful in business and he owns that book today and he has it on his shelf and he's, he, he says it's a great book. But it, it was an enlightening story. It's different. This is different. And it's real. It's property rights and religious rights and whatever else is written to the Constitution of the U.S. that just differentiates us. But there are good things of a collectivist communist society. I'm not saying, I'm not vouching for it, but we, we always have to find some beauty in the chaos, it's protected. It, it, could, it could help people. People are clearly living there. Not everybody wants to escape it. How about if you're in politics? How about if you're, you're running these businesses and you're, you're making the money and your family, you're giving it to your family and your kids are getting educated. And you know, there are people that are making a, a successful living in these types of, of economies. And idealistically, if you had a really good leader that was running a country like Cuba, they really would share the wealth with the nation. They would institute practices that are giving back to the people. 
it would allow for certain rights and it would make exceptions here and there. But that's that's idealism. It's not always the case. I mean, one of the reasons why I share the story is pretty authentically is like if you just remember my friend that was running a business, it's how he makes his money. Was one day he's running a business, the next day he's gone. He's never coming back again. And that could happen with certain governments if you're not careful. And as we move to cultural intelligence, it goes back to if he was culturally intelligent, he would have asked around. He would have said, who, who am I, you know, who's the boss around here? And probably started paying him a little bit of money and sort of been a part of that understanding. He had no idea. He was ignorant, naive American dude that thought he was getting away with something. All of these countries are different culturally. And some of the objective ways are different is something called power distance. Levels of acceptance of inequality and power among institutions, organizations, and people. We just talked about an interesting example of that. Highest power distance, which means that they, levels of acceptance of inequality and power among institutions, they're okay with inequality. They have a structure that says, I'm the boss, you're not. That kind of thing. Number one is Mexico. It's interesting. Number one is Mexico. So let's just think top five are okay with people having more power than them, and they're okay with that gap between your power and my power. And that's Mexico, India, France, Thailand, and that's Japan. Those are the top five. So let's just talk about the last two that are least accepting of it. Meaning, no, no, no. You and I were, yeah, you may have more money than me, you may have a title, but I deserve an equal amount of respect that you do in this particular environment. Number 10 is Sweden. More casual, flat hierarchy, go to Sweden. Number nine, there's a tie for eight. Costa Rica and West Germany. And West Germany. And seven is Australia. Uncertainty avoidance, comfort level with uncertainty and ambiguity. A high uncertainty of avoidance means I do not want uncertainty. I'm not okay with uncertainty. I want to know the outcome. So this means that you really don't like uncertainty. Highest uncertainty avoidance is Japan. They do not like uncertainty. They want to know what to expect. Costa Rica and France, they want to know what to expect. They do not like uncertainty. Four, Mexico. Number five would be West Germany. Countries that are okay with uncertainty, Sweden, very similar. India is okay with uncertainty. And the United States. It's funny, the United States falls about in the middle of the power distance. And then they're okay with uncertainty. They're much more okay with uncertainty than Japan. Individualism and collectivism. So I did a whole research study on this and wrote a whole research paper about the... So we had this black swan event called COVID. And within the Black Swan event called COVID, a lot of these corporations, they did something called corporate social responsibility events, meaning they gave to charities, they, they employed people, and even though they weren't working or they stayed from home, they didn't lay anyone off, corporate social responsibility. So within a Black Swan event, a company does corporate social responsibility. Our question was, does that build brand trust, which leads to purchase intention? The study was on cultures and how receptive they were to change their mind based on a company's desire to do corporate social responsibility. But what we looked at is it depended on the individualistic or collectivist aspect of a culture. If you have an individualist culture, which is United States is big, Australia, Sweden, you have France. Individualist culture. You're not as receptive to caring whether or not somebody did corporate social responsibility. Does it matter to you to give money to an organization and where that money went? You should use one of your coffee, right? It doesn't matter to you. So the point is, some people, it matters where they spend their money. You want to know that that organization I spend my money with is doing things that are socially responsible. That happens more in collectivist cultures. Collectivist culture, 
which means that there's more paternal, maternal instincts. You know, we're, we're, we, we get together and we make sure everyone's doing well. It doesn't matter how you perform versus you perform. We're all on one team. That's collectiveness. So what, what country is most collectivist? Costa Rica, Thailand, masculinity culture. Pre preference for achievement, heroism, assertiveness, work centrality with resultant high stress and material success. Versus a femininity culture is value, relationships, cooperation, group decisions, making, and quality of life. And I, I can see certain cultures around the world that they're clearly performance-based versus they're more have a feminine culture. Highest in masculinity is one, performance-based outcome. Japan, two, Mexico, three. So how about the least, Sweden? Go there. This is a really cool paradigm to understand that there's four aspects here, that if we're gonna develop our cultural intelligence, we have to understand these aspects and the differences because we act differently in Japan. Do you guys sit up straight? Sit up straight, probably, I'm assuming that it's a very chain of command type of event. And that's the same thing you walk into a border. You say, hey, what's up? And we just like unbutton this and they're gonna be like yeah. <laughs> Whereas if you go to Sweden, they'll be like, you'll be like, hey, what's up? Yo, what's up? Yo, give me a hug, how you doing? Yo, relax, chill, you know, chill. But that's it's a joke, but that's for real. It's a difference. I'm trying to paint the extreme so you understand that these things are for us to understand and develop our cultural intelligence. Assertiveness, future orientation, gender differentiation, performance orientation, humane orientation. Assertiveness. Extent to which a society encourages toughness, assertiveness, and competitiveness. High on assertiveness, Spain, United States, Germany. Low on assertiveness, Sweden, Switzerland, Japan. You go and you be assertive in these countries, it's like that is not so great. In the United States, they value assertiveness. Ask for what you want. They say the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Versus in other countries is the, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Or the squawking duck gets chopped off. You want to stand out and be different and be assertive around here? That's not how it works. But in the U.S., we're rewarded for that assertiveness. We ask people, cold call, make the call, ask, ask for the deal. Go out there and don't be afraid to get rejected. But in certain countries, that, that class doesn't, doesn't go. Future orientation. orientation. You figure that would be a good thing. Every society would do that. Setting goals, right? Low, Russia, Italy, Kuwait. I don't care about that kind of stuff. I don't care too much about people. <laughs> they care about the present and they care about the past. They're about history and heritage and uh, legacy and tradition. That it's okay. Versus Denmark, Canada, and Singapore, they're about innovation, the future. They want to go to another planet. Uh, gender differentiation, extent to which a society maximizes gender role differences. Play their roles separately to come together and do something. It's the same thing in the business environment. So gender differences, low, Sweden, Denmark, Poland. Hey, men and women are equal, they play the same roles. A man can do what a woman does, a woman can do what a man does. Versus South Korea, Egypt, and China, no. In this environment, this is what women do. In this environment, this is what. And that's, that's real. So think about, as, as a female, going over to South Korea or putting on um, a leadership hat and being shunned for it. Your whole life, you're encouraged to step up and take charge and get educated your role, maybe earn some money. In these societies, that's not the case. Versus these societies are more equitable. Brazil is medium, neutral. What I'm gonna say is, is they care, they just don't care as much. Like there are roles, but they're not as delineated as they are here.
Performance orientation extent to which the society places emphasis on performance and rewards people for improvement. Russia, Greece, Venezuela is low. United States, Taiwan, Hong Kong, performance oriented. Knowing that I'm not performing for people. I'm performing for influence, for my family, for myself. I'm performing to make an impact on others. Humane orientation, the degree to which a society encourages and rewards people for being fair, altruistic, generous, and caring. So Germany, France, and Singapore don't care about humane orientation. <laughs> Indonesia, and Egypt, and Iceland, they care about it. They want you to be humane. So high context culture, people are sensitive to the circumstances surrounding social exchange. I care. I'm sensitive to it. A low context culture is people using communication primarily to exchange facts and information. Meaning is derived primarily from words. How I walk, how I present myself, it's out of intention. Like I want to change the way you guys feel, not just have you listen to what I'm saying. So the reason why I do this is because model this behavior if you're trying to behave in certain cultures where you're trying to get something across. When you say, when you think of high context, I mean, give me the background information. Give me the, give me the fluff. Give me the reading in between the lines before you tell me the lie. So that's the difference. Implicit communication, people send and receive unspoken cues, such as tone of voice, body language, in addition to the explicit spoken words when talking with others. Global mindset's important, but it is vital for us as managers to embrace a global mindset, cognitive, psychological, and social aspects. Build the global mindset. Cultural intelligence, how do we develop it? Immersive way, understanding the context behind our communications. Understanding the differences between certain cultures, masculinity, power distance, reward system, assertiveness. Your task is to consider the types of organizational cultures and determine what culture the organization is fostering. You should list specific aspects of the culture that fit your values and those that do not. And then state specifically what you want to change within the organization and why. So remember the values, the list of values that you use. We want to now take that individual unit of analysis bring it to the organization. Does this organization embody the same values? Once you have identified the changes you want to implement, you should discuss specific tools that fall under the three management tool categories, scientific management, behavioral science, human resource perspective, and managing through technology and use of artificial intelligence. But just understand the different types of change that you can implement and which one you would use. Is it more of a cultural change, a transformational change, or is it an objective change through technology, through efficiency, that kind of stuff? will challenge you to think critically about organizational culture and identify areas for improvement within a specific organization. Additionally, you will gain practical experience in developing managerial tools, management tools and strategies that can be used to implement change. The self-assessment is really to bring you to this place where you're saying, okay, now that I, if I'm thinking about management, how am I going to go about this? Because management is about planning, organizing, leading, and controlling. And every aspect of that is bound to change. We talked about the turbulence in the environment. Understanding change and it's your duty to inflict and enforce change within your organization is pivotal to management. So this is saying, okay, you want to change something because hopefully you do. And if you do, how are you going to go about it? Why do you want to change it? And how are you going to do it?